I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with John Cleese as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with a man whose life has travelled all the way from Western Supermare to Hollywood. Along the way, he's picked up an Oscar nomination. He's also inspired a whole generation of comedy fans with the zaniness of Monty Python and the iconic character Basil Fawlty. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with John Cleese. Thanks for doing this. I, I said in the introduction that your your life's taking you from Western Supermare <laughs> all the way to Hollywood. Yeah. But not many people from Western Supermare have ever been to Hollywood. No, that's true. I was born there in October 1939, one month after the beginning of the Second World War. And we thought we were pretty safe in Western, and then the Germans came and bombed it. And the Bestonians, actually, they were rather pleased they'd been bombed because it gave them a sense of importance that they never had before, <laughs> you know. The whole idea of bombing Western Superman is wonderfully pointless, you know. My dad <laughs> said that the Germans bombed Western to prove that they really do have a sense of humour. <laughs> But for you, your childhood, uh, when I read about it, you seem to move around a lot. All the time, John. All but but the... not, you? not far Did away. You? Not really. We moved Lots out of... to Liverpool to a place called Windsor in Cheshire, then Run Call, and then I left so only three times. But you moved a lot of times. I think I can remember 13 houses in my first 13 years. I think that's, that's right. And one of the funny things, because I talk sometimes about creativity, because when I discovered, to my astonishment, at the age of 22 that I could be creative, no-one at school had ever told me, I started to read a little bit about it, and one of the characteristics of, of very creative people is that they move a lot in their youth. And I, I think the reason is that if you move a lot, you start comparing where you were with where you are now, and you sort yeah. of look for comparisons, and that makes you interested in differences, and that seems to make people more creative, whereas if they just grow up in one place, like Omaha, Nebraska, you know, and stay all their life there, they, they don't have anything to compare it with, so they're not very creative. So I think that helped. But as a child, you, you didn't move schools too much, did you? Not too much, no, no. I had five years in a prep school in Western Supermare, yeah. which was a nice kind place. I have very warm memories of it. And then I went to Clifton College, which was a public yeah. school, and I was there for a time. I was a day boy, because my parents couldn't afford, obviously, to be a boarder. I was happier as a day boy. And then I got into Cambridge, and I didn't want to go on studying science, which is why I got into Cambridge. So I said, what else can I do? And they said, not much. And I said, well, what? what? And they said, you can do archaeology, economics, or law. And I thought, oh. all right, so I do law. And uh, that's how I became a lawyer. Yeah, but 
I mean, you skipped over quite a few things there as if that was a normal path to take. But from what I've read, for your family, it was a big step to go to a school like Clifton College. And, oh, and then, I and think then to so. go on to yeah. somewhere like Cambridge. Oh, where... yes. Well, there was, no, there was no one else in my family had ever been to a university or anywhere yeah. near it. But it was very funny because the relatives had different reactions. I remember my Auntie Vera, who actually I adored because she made the best roast potatoes I've ever had. Auntie Vera, when she heard I was going to Cambridge, she said, well, why does he want to go there? <laughs> but then we heard about a month later, she was saying to all, all, all her friends, oh, my nephew's going to Cambridge. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. For me, somebody who didn't know you looking at you, I, I always thought you were almost to the man of born, but that's not oh, been not the case, all. My it? dad sold insurance. Yeah. And he used to drive around Somerset in a, in a 10-horsepower car selling uh, life insurance and storm and tempest to all the farmers who had big uh, greenhouses which could get damaged in storm. And that was all he did. And he earned, at the peak of his earnings in 55, he was earning 30 quid a week. But we never, ever seemed to be short of money. We've got a photograph of you with your dad. Ah, there he is. I was... Oh, I love that man. Dear man. How old were you when he died? Uh, he was into his uh, late 70s. I think he was 77, which was a very good age in those days. Yeah. He died of emphysema because he smoked all his life. Did he live long enough to see your success? He lived long enough, let me think. He, he died in 72, so he didn't see 40 towers. Yeah. He loved, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, as my mum did, but neither of them got Monty Python. Yeah. <laughs> they just didn't get it. It didn't matter, didn't matter. But then he, my mum my mum loved Clockwise. Yeah. Movie I written by my hero, Michael Frayn. And uh, she loved it because I was a headmaster and her fantasy was is that I would come down to Western Supermare and be a headmaster and live at home. We've actually got a picture of you and your mother when, when you were a boy, which is a lovely picture. She looks very severe, doesn't she? She hated being photographed. And she used to go around family photographs, cutting herself out really? of the photographs. So there'd be all these nice, cleased family photographs with a mother-shaped hole in the middle. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Yeah. Why was that? She mm. just never liked herself. Well, the old word was neurotic, you know, mm. but she was depressed and she just worried about everything. I mean, she's the only person I've ever met in my life, John, who used to write her worries down so that she wouldn't forget any. No. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> she was frightened she'd forget them because she sort of felt if she had a worry and she forgot about it for a moment, then it would happen. And when after Dad died, I'd go down west and she would greet me at the door with a cup of coffee and a list of her worries that she'd been compiling, writing down for the previous two or three weeks. And I'd sit there and talk through each worry with her, you see what I mean, whether it was likely to happen and what we would do if it did and all this kind of thing. And then if we hadn't finished by bedtime, we'd finish them off in the morning at breakfast. <laughs> Yeah. And being with her, that was what it was. It wasn't what I said, but just being with her, that helped her and calmed her down, you know. But she had a wonderful black sense of humor. You see, because she was depressed, John, I used to call her about once or twice a week. And it was very good later on when her memory went, because she was always complaining I hadn't called her recently. And then I could say, <laughs> Mum, once her memory went, I said, Mum, I called you yesterday, you know, it was wonderful. 
But I, I, she used to call me, I used to call her and I, and I would say, oh, hello, Mum, it's John. She'd say, oh, hello, John, how are you? I'd say, I'm fine, Mother, how are you? And she would always say, with a sort of hint of surprise, she would say, well, I've, I've been feeling just a little bit down this week. And I don't know why she was surprised, John, because she was a little bit down this week for 50 fucking years. <laughs> <laughs> On one occasion, she was listing, literally listing the reasons that she didn't want to go on living. Because she was in a home, she was in the late 80s, all her friends had died. I understood this, but you don't want your mum to be unhappy, you want her to be happy. And I thought, what can I do? I didn't know, I was thinking, oh, God, and I said something out of the blue. In my greatest creative moment, I said, Mum, I have an idea. She said, oh, what is that? And I said, I know a little man who lives in Fulham. And if you're still feeling this way, next week, you don't want to go on living. I could give him a call if you like, but only if you like, and he could come down to Western Supermare and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> this startled silence. <laughs> and then she cackled with laughter. <laughs> it was absolutely wonderful. Could have gone I... the other way. <laughs> it could have gone the other way, because I have a very, very naughty like this. I had two lovely... Um, well, they used to call them secretaries, and then that's regarded as sort of rather demeaning now, except that Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. It was quite important. Mm -hmm. Now they're called um, <clears throat> personal assistants, and they both lost boyfriends in the same month. Now, they've not been with these boys very long, either of them, but one was killed in a motor accident and one was killed in another way, and I walked into the office the next on Monday morning and said to them, anyone dead today I should know about you. <laughs> One of them laughed till she cried. That was Amanda. And Henrietta just cried. <laughs> but if you've got this very naughty sense of humour, sometimes you have to shut up, you know, and not say things like at state funerals. But time, there are times it, it breaks things, doesn't it? It breaks taboos. It, it breaks... does, and it reminds us. Your most important thing to realise, you know, is that we're all going to die. Do you see what I mean? And my favourite story is about a woman who went to see a Tibetan Buddhist lama and said, I'm dying, I'm dying. And the Tibetan lama said, we're all dying, dear. It's just a question of the time frame. What was great that I've seen looking around is some of the things that you did early on in your career were still funny later on in your career. And what we've done, we've took a clip from the At Last, the 1948 show. That's right. And you did a sketch, which is quite funny, actually, when you were talking about where you grew up and go, you know, it wasn't that rough, because you did the sketch, The oh, Four Yorkshiremen. The Four Yorkshiremen. Which was brilliant, and I've always loved it. Oh, I've always so loved pleased. it. In fact, that we was 1967, John. Yeah. We recreated it, actually, for comic relief, because it's such an iconic sketch. I heard years ago, about yeah. that, and I meant to ask you about royalties. <laughs> <laughs> what is so brilliant, when you consider the power of the writing, that you did it... 1967, then you did it on the Monty Python tour 47 years later. That's right. And what we've done is we've stuck them together so oh. that you can see the laughs are still in the same places. You don't get that very Oh, often. that's interesting. We're going to watch it here. Yeah. My old dad said to me, he said, money won't bring you happiness, son. He was right. Oh. I was happier then. I had nothing. Oh. We used to live in a tiny, tumble-down old house with great holes in roof. House? You're looking to have a house? We used to live in one room, 26 of us. All there, no furniture, half the floor was missing, and we were all huddled in one corner for fear of falling. <laughs> Run! 
You were lucky to have a room. We used to have to live in corridor. Corridor? Oh, I used to dream of living in a corridor. That would have been a palace to us. We used to live in a water tank on rubbish tip. Ah, every morning we'd be woke up by having a load of rotting fish dumped on us. House. Ah. Well, when I say house, it was only a hole in the ground covered by a sheet of tarpaulin, but it was a house to us. We were evicted from our hole in the ground. <laughs> we had to go and live in the swamp. You were lucky to have a swamp. <laughs> there were 150 of us living in shoebox in Middler Road. Cardboard box. Aye. You were lucky. <laughs> I'm worried sometimes about trying to write comedy now because I, I don't understand so much of the modern world. I mean, if I had to do a, a rewrite of Fish Called Wanda, it would all change because of the mobile phone. Do you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You'd have to change everything. So it's very interesting that old comedy like that can work just as well with an audience. They don't have any difficulty about sort of thinking back to that time. Whereas if I was trying to write something modern now, I just I don't understand enough of how it works. You mentioned Fish Called Wanda, which, you know, for which you were nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay. That's it's the it... proudest, because my writing, I'm a good actor, but I think I can be sometimes a very good writer, and that's the only time I ever get an award for it. I'm very proud of that. It's a massive success, but it also, it, it, it came after you were well known to everybody with the Python. I mean, the collaboration with Python, you know, the mm. group of you that got together. What was the magic that made it work? Because it really broke a lot of boundaries. I think it was because we had safety in numbers. Yeah. And we were able to try things that we would have been too scared to try otherwise because the others thought it was funny. I mean, extraordinary thing about this, and I think it says a lot about creativity, is that Gray and I were writing film scripts at that time. I was hardly performing. And we used to watch on Thursday afternoon a kids' programme because Mike and Terry and uh, Eric and Terry Gilliam used to do it. We knew them from the Frost Report. We knew each other yeah. a bit. And Graham and I thought it was the funniest show on English television. And I rang them up at Graham's suggestion and I said, hey, you guys, why don't we get together and do a TV series? And they said, yeah, all right. So Marty's writing partner, Barry Took, arranged for us to go and see the head of Light Entertainment. His name was Michael Mills. And we went into his office and Mr. Mills greeted us and sat us down and said, uh, so what do you, you want to do a series? He said, we'd love to, Mr. Mills. And he said, well, what do, you, what do you propose doing? And there was a silence because we hadn't discussed it. I mean, can you believe that? <laughs> I mean, how is it possible that we've not really discussed all it? all six of you have sat there and you'd not have a chat. Well, we just sat there and then he said, well, are you going to have guest stars? And we said, oh, are we, are we going to... What? You said, what about music? We said, yeah, yeah, we might have some... Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe some music. And he said, film. We said, ooh, good idea. And there was this embarrassed silence and I thought I was just going to go home and kill myself. I mean, this is the most important guy in my professional life. This is humiliating. And he looked at us, dear man, shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, go away and make 13 programmes. <laughs> it's the only time in recorded history, John, that someone has given a group 
a series. Not one yeah. show, but a series without having the slightest idea what they were going to do. <laughs> and without the group having the slightest idea what they were going to do. Then that's amazing. And because, I think, because there were no parameters, yeah. because we didn't go into it with a structure or an idea, that's why it was so creative. Yeah, that's what I mean, the creative freedom to, like, go make something. Yeah, and yeah. all we did is we went and had meetings, got nowhere, and Terry Jones said, let's go home and write. We went and wrote for a week. Then we phoned round and said, what have you written? And I said, well, I've written a bit of stuff. Is it funny? I don't know. And we all got together and read it out of Terry Jones's house. And we started to laugh at each other's material. And we suddenly yeah. thought, well, at least we think it's funny. So whereas nowadays you have lots of people saying, well, you know, let's, let's try to get sort of the young 20s in here. Yeah, and it's yeah, got to be exactly. multiracial and all this stuff. We just did what made us laugh. And I think that that was why it turned out to be so original, because we disobeyed all the rules. And as a group, I mean, were you close? Were you friends? Was it a working situation? It was, we got on rather well. And, uh, but there were, I was always a sort of natural pal of, of, of Michael Palin's, yeah. and I think we would have become friends anyway. And Eric and I grew closer together because we had similar interests. But the main thing, which I just want to say from the point of view, my interest in groups working together, the main thing about the team was that they all had different qualities. Yeah. You don't Not want a team with all the same no. qualities, and these were all very different. Well, what was brilliant about it, and I think I'm trying to think of a, another group of people who've done it, and I can't think of anyone who's gone from a sketch show to them making successful films. Well, so. I don't know, because, you know, that's what Woody Allen did. If you think of Woody Allen's... Uh, he started as a stand-up. Yeah. I saw him in Basin Street East in New York in about 65. And then he went to films that were really just sketch films, just like Holy Grail. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The film that I think, in my opinion anyway, is the strongest is the one with the strongest story, which is The Life of Brian. Life I, of Brian. I think it's a brilliant totally piece of work. Brilliant. It's the best thing we ever did, and I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah. Very proud of it. 
But it's also something from watching it again. It could have been made last week. The themes that I come know. out are so well, relevant. If it had been made last week, we would probably have been lynched. Yeah. <laughs> you know. we were close to getting lynched when it was made. Well, no, there was always just for, you know, people always exaggerate something, but it was never that bad. We, we, we got a certain amount of criticism, but it was never that nasty. It was in America. It was hilarious. Yeah. Because before anybody knew what was in the movie, they were out there protesting in front of the cinema with these signs. One of them said, Monty Python is an agent of the devil. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? I remember thinking I'd like to be on 10% of what he earns. <laughs> and when they called us in London and we said, when are we coming over to do publicity? They say, you don't have to. He said, the pro protesters have done it all for you. <laughs> They'd got us, we were uh, absolutely packed with cinemas because of the protesters giving us all this publicity. But anyway, when the film came out in America, not here, it was very mild here, but in America it was condemned by the Calvinists, the Catholics, the Presbyterians, and altogether seven of, of them condemned us and said that their followers should not go and see the film. And Eric Idle said, well, at least we've done one good thing, because it's the first thing they've been able to agree on for 2,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can talk to you without without talking about faulty towers because uh, faulty. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things. I'm sure for the whole audience here, yeah, everyone's seen every episode. It's amazing to think you're only made two series. It's such an iconic thing within. Well, Connie and I wrote it together, and we used to spend six weeks on each episode, which is un in the world of television. Most people spend maybe 10 days on an mm. episode. Sometimes they'll write it in four or five days and you can see the result. But uh, she and I used to spend six weeks, we spent two and a half weeks just on the plot. We didn't write a word of dialogue. When we got the plot right, we started to write the dialogue. And uh, that means there's so much in them. We used to do 140 pages in a, in a half hour program and the average number of pages was 65. So for every page in an ordinary sitcom in the same time we would do two pages. Would so, you film it and then edit it? Or no, would you, we, we, would you just we keep on editing? it in front of an audience. We had four cameras. Uh, we didn't, like in America, they have four or five different film cameras. They all film the whole thing. Then you can take the, this, this. But we didn't do that. We just had four cameras. And then at the end of it, we were able to edit it. But we used to spend 20 hours editing each show, just shaving off tiny little things. And there might be two lines here that didn't work, so you snip them out. And by doing that, you get a speed, you get a rhythm, a yeah. rhythm. And it was, it was very, very patient. I mean, the character of Basil Fawlty, I've heard you talk about it before and I've read a lot of what you said, that he's, in many respects, he's somebody who wants to do the right thing and, and, and is scared of getting it wrong and it just it's, always runs most away. Most of his bad behaviour is coming out of, out of uh, fear. But fear is simple normally, but sometimes fear of a hotel inspector or yeah. fear of a very important guest who he's got to impress. But if he was just gratuitously rude nasty all the time. It wouldn't be funny, but the audience knows that that fear's coming out. Yeah, they kind of want him to win. 
even though Yes, you want him to win, like although he's actually awful. <laughs> he's a really awful man. But he was bass, which I didn't realise. Yeah, he was bass. He's based on a real person. Actual guy who ran Glen Eagles Hotel in Torquay and the Pythons went and stayed there. And they left after two days because it was so terrible. But I stayed on, so did Eric, and so luckily did Connie. And uh, we stayed there for the whole, whole week and just watched him. And when I broke the series, because I went back later to Connie three years later, I said to her, well, what are we going to do? Within 20 minutes, we said, we'll do the hotel. And we, uh, we told Jimmy Gilbert at the BBC we'd like to do this thing about the hotel. And, 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 and so we just went ahead. And I never said where the hotel was for 10 years. And then one day, I just let slip was the Glen Eagles Hotel in Torquay. And the Daily Mail tracked the poor man down. He'd left, he'd sold up, and he'd gone to Miami. And he wouldn't speak to them. But they managed to get his daughter to watch two of the episodes she'd never seen. And she watched the two episodes and she turned to the reporter and said, that's Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Connie was your first wife of your Connie Connie was first wife, that's right. We were together for a number of years. We're still good friends. And then I married a very beautiful girl called Barbara, Barbara Trentham, and I had... Also, I had a daughter with, with Connie yeah. uh, called Cynthia, who's out in... Uh, in uh, L.A. And then I had a daughter with, with Barbara, who's also at L.A. She's the stand-up comedian. Yeah. And then I married Alice Faye. Hey! <laughs> 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 oh, I'll be all right in a moment. <laughs> and uh, then uh, $20 million later, I married for the first time an English girl. I, I mean, you did do the alimony tour, which you said was to, to, to pay for your divorce for the... Well, $20 million. I mean, I'm not moaning, but I'm just saying, as I say to fact, it's quite a lot of money. How on earth did that happen? I, nobody knows. Apparently, even English divorce lawyers say it's the worst ever. So that kind of dominated the next seven or eight years of my life because I just had to do things for money instead of doing things because I wanted to and, and, and things that I loved. But now it's that's all gone, it's all gone. I married the most wonderful girl. It's interesting when you see someone who's oh, he's been married four times, you think, oh, well, he's a bit of a philanderer. But I looked at the chronology and they were all long marriages. They were, well, they were all about seven or eight years all together. I think it adds up to nearly 40 years, because Jenny and I have now been together for eight years, married for five, I think, and then I think I did seven or eight with Connie. I've been married for nearly 40 yeah. years. Yeah. So, which in many respects seems to suggest that you're a romantic. Yes, I think that's right. I think I was, and uh, and as I, I, I say this, is all men will throw up, but the women like it. It's, it's like, this is a real love match, you know, and I'd never had that before. And it's, I think it has transformed me because you, so when you have someone who really loves you and whom you really love, everything else becomes a little bit less important. Hmm? I suppose also when Some you... people nodding, not others. <laughs> in all the time, you know, and I'm asking you this as a man who's been in four marriages, had two kids, had the ups and downs of life, had the benefits and the problems of fame and is to try to look at the human mind and make people laugh and make people happy. Have you got anything, any sense of what happiness is? Is there anything where, after all of your studies mm. of humour, of laughter, of joy, have you got anything that says that that's what you need to look for to be happy? Yes, you, I used to think there might be some secret that you could write down on a piece of paper, and of course, it's not it at all. 
because whatever your circumstances are, it's a question of how you're sort of feeling inside and how you're dealing with those things, you know. I remember going down to see my mum in a home once and I just worked this little formula out, what I thought it was all about, and there it was, stuck up on the wall of this elderly person's home. And I think it's called the something prayer, and it just said, uh, please, God, uh, help us to do what we need to do and um, to recognise uh, when we can't help and the wisdom to know the difference between... Yeah. I think that... I'm just trying to remember the, the phrase that you're talking about. I think it's... Uh, serenity make, prayer. Ser, the serenity, serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. Yeah, yeah, Does God, anyone here know it? I want to try it. May God grant me the strength to change the things I can't change, to recognise the things I can't change and the wisdom to know the difference. That's it. Well done. And when I saw that, I thought that's, that's largely what it's about, but it's much more to do with getting yourself right than getting circumstances right. And I think what I've done now very luckily is I've met someone who evokes love in me, um, perhaps in the way that my children didn't, particularly when they were younger, you know, and when you actually become a little bit unselfish and there is more to your life than just you. In other words, you see yourself in a bigger context. So would you say you're happier now than you've ever been? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I put it down to Jenny and the cats. <laughs> and, and just getting older, because you do mellow, you know. You but the main thing, John, is not to, to realise most things don't matter. You see, in the old days, I'd come on to talk to you and I'd be worried about whether I said the right thing or I didn't say the right thing, and now I just sit here and have a gossip, you know, and it's very similar to a gossip we'd have when we were having dinner together. Yeah. It's not that different. No, no. All right. I mean, I wouldn't invite them to then, of course. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we have got in common a little bit is we, me and you were both co-signatories in a massive thing where a number of people signed when it came round to the Leveson inquiry. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. the freedom of the press and the controls on the press. All right, yeah. you know, I mean, some people would say that, oh, boring old fool, that's what they call me now, I was a boring old fool, uh, that I'm on, going on moaning about the British press. Well, I'm going to say something that's going to start you guys a little bit. Two weeks ago, the European Broadcasting Union released a poll that they'd done in 33 European countries. They'd asked a 1,000 people in each country, to what extent do you trust the media, the printed media, in your country? OK? Guess which country was last? Mm. The UK. Last. After Turkey, after Montenegro, after Serbia, after Slovakia, we were 33rd. Did you read about this in the papers? <laughs> Why? This is censorship by the press, of the press. Nobody ever complains about this. And, of course, they'll use all their usual lying because they have lied very, very badly about this. They lied about what Leveson about. Leveson is about the way that uh, are coming up with a system where ordinary people, excuse me saying ordinary people, not us overpaid stars, can get corrections made when we're lied about in the papers. This, how could you object to that as a principle? And I'll tell you why the papers object to it, because if they started printing all the corrections that they had to print, people would realise how sloppy and lazy and inaccurate they were and they would lose credibility. Newspapers should be telling us about reality, not being run like propaganda paper strips, you know? And it's, it's a source of pain to me that we're 33rd in Europe and we don't even know it because the papers hush it up. 
end of speak. No, but... <laughs> but it's, it, it, it's interesting to hear you talk with such passion because, again, when somebody sees you on paper, they go, I went to Cambridge, joined the BBC, they would say you were, and, and because of, I suppose your accent and so on, they, you're part of the establishment, but you're not. Oh, you're no, we, the Pythons were never remotely part of the establishment. But in the old days, I used to think that a lot of the people in charge were doing a pretty good job. And now I think a small number of them are, and an awful lot of them are trying to get four feet in the trough. And I have no interest in being part of it. In fact, I think my best role now is just to stir things up a bit. <laughs> because I think we... I want to see people getting a bit angry and a bit... Uh, just getting angry about the fact this society doesn't work properly and it rewards the rich and powerful far too much. Yeah. And it's not the decent society that we used to have a long time ago, which was a mess, like societies always are, but there was a certain degree of fairness to it. For you, when you're saying all that, it's quite interesting, really, because I thought I was going to read you've been given awards or bees, knighthoods, whatever. You've never been part of that, that group of oh. people. No, that's right. They asked me at one point if I wanted to be a CBE, Commander of the British Empire. And I said, well, if I accept this, can I be called Commander Cleese? You know, like <laughs> Commander Bond. And they said no. And I said, well, what is this British Empire we're talking about? What does it consist of? And they sort of said, Rock Hall and the Isle of Wight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then when Paddy, dear Paddy, who's one of the great politicians... Paddy Ashdown. Paddy Ashdown, yes. When, it, when he uh, gave up as, as, as leader of the Lib Dems, he asked if I would go to the House of uh, Lords and meet with Bill Rogers, who was one of the founders of the party, and... Uh, so I thought, yeah, well, I don't know what it was. Maybe they want me to do one. I did two party politicals for them about proportional representation. So I went there and he asked me one or two questions and I thought, oh, my God, he's offering me a period. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I suddenly realised that was what was going on. It was all being done very pleasantly and subtly. And I, I thought, well, do I want to be a peer? And I thought, well, it would annoy the Pythons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> particularly Gilliam. Um, and then I thought, mm, that's it. I got to find out once. I well, what do, what do you have to do? And you have to be there all the time to vote. I don't want to be in London in the winter. You know, I'm lucky, <laughs> lucky enough to be able to go. So I sort of made up a thing about chest infections and sort of... <laughs> Passed on. <laughs> but uh, I mean, some people it matters a lot to some people, yeah, those sort of but things. But looking back at your childhood and your. your Have you father, had any? No. Not had a nod. Not, not a nod. Not yet. a nod. What age are you? Me, 50. Well, wait till you get to 70. People yeah. start getting much nicer. Oh, it doesn't to you. matter then. You know <laughs> no, it mean? doesn't matter yeah. anymore. So I, and, and I'm a little bit like you. I kind of think, well, it doesn't. Well, it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, there are more interesting things than piling up time. But your dad would have wanted you to take you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Dad loved the class system and had great respect. And if I had married a duke's daughter, he would have creamed his jeans. <laughs> <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll all agree. That's been a brilliant conversation, hasn't yeah, it? Thank you. Really enjoyed it.
This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.